welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Today, we got a Q&A. We got some good questions, guys. Here again, we're getting a lot of good questions from our podcast form on Facebook. It's Tailored Life Podcast Form Group, so check it out if you're a listener. Add yourself in. Yep. Answer I, the questions. I go through it, you know, a couple times a week and uh, make sure everybody is put into that group. So yeah. there in the form that's in the description are like the two main places mm-hmm. for those. Um, we haven't used a Instagram story for a Q&A in a minute. It's good. So many questions from there, which is great. Um, yeah. And apologies for my voice. I might have to cough a few times. I got a Travis got me sick. <laughs> no COVID, I swear. Just raspy as hell. It almost makes me sound like a more of a radio show host, I feel like. Like, yeah. I remember when you were sick. Yeah. I was like, dude, your voice sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> it, like, hurts to talk, but it sounds so good on the mic. <laughs> Very nice and deep. <laughs> All right. I mean, you got it. Like, you you guys will experience this eventually. But, um, man, like. Experience what? Once Blakely started going to preschool, mm-hmm. the amount of, like, colds that enter a household went up significantly. Yeah. Like, she never got sick, really, besides her kidney issue that she had, which is, like, a defect she was born with. But, like, and that caused UTIs and all that kind of stuff, right? But, like, the snotty nose kind of common cold shit, the amount of time she's gotten that since being in preschool is nuts. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess it's expected. you know. And then she passes it to everybody in the house. And then my cocky ass is always like, nah, I don't get sick. My immune system's so strong. But. And then, sure enough, she gets I mean, you're not really sick. You have a sore throat. Yeah. I have a cold. Yeah, common cold. That's a thing still. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Let's get to the first one. We have, um, we got one coming from Parker. It says, I went through a cut, reversed, and now at maintenance all throughout my average steps are around 16,000. If I lower them now, will it cause fat gain or weight gain if I keep, also if I keep the calories the same? So he went through a cut, he reversed, and now at maintenance, and all throughout my average steps were 16K. If he lowers them now, will it cause fat or weight gain? Also, if he keeps his calories the same. Worded very interestingly. but I think what he's getting at is basically like he he has 16,000 steps. He goes through a diet, and he increases his calories after the diet. He reversed diet. All the while, he kept his steps at 16,000 the whole time. Now he's at 16,000 steps with more calories because he – Kept his calories up is what he's saying. Yeah. Now, can he lower them without gaining weight? The answer is yes, if you do things properly. Um, But the answer is also yes, you could gain weight if you don't do things properly. So it's, you know, it's really actually a pretty simple answer. I mean, activity thermogenesis is one of the factors. So when we reverse diet, there's there's a, a combination of things that lead to us staying lean while reverse dieting. So if he was able to maintain his new weight, his new body fat levels while reverse dieting, it means that either A, I mean, number one, your BMR does go up. The BMR is, is uh, I should say RMR because resting metabolic rate would be like, what am I burning calories just to stand here, right? When we eat a more calories, typically our RMR goes up because we have more, if we have more muscle tissue, so on and so forth. But also your BMR is accumulative of meat, eat, 
TEF and a couple other things. EAT being exercise activity thermogenesis. NEAT being non-exercise activity thermogenesis, like steps, standing up, stuff like that. Talking, podcasting, things I'm doing right now. Fidgeting. Um, fidgeting, everything. Um, then uh, TEF is thermic effective feeding. So how many calories you burn eating food. Uh, and then um, that's basically it. I'm trying to think. I feel like there's one more that I'm forgetting. Thermic effective food, exercise activity thermogenesis, um, and then neat. Yeah, maybe that's it. I'm, I might be missing something. But the point is, is all these different things, right? And then there's obviously metabolic processes like how fast your fucking hair grows, how fast like this cut of my finger is going to heal, um, how fast my tattoos heal, like legitimately mm-hmm. because those are wounds that need skin and repair of cells and things like that. Um, so there's different things in the body that are going to require calories. All these things increase in speed or in quantity based on the amount of calories we consume. But his neat didn't increase. So he thinks it probably did through means of like you said, fidgeting or talking or whatever, moving around things that aren't necessarily steps. He just kept his steps the same. Typically when people reverse their steps go up as well. Um, his thermic effect food went up obviously cause he's eating more calories, but also if you're filling your diet with less processed foods, you're going to have a better time with this. And this is why during a reverse diet and this is kind of a side tangent, it's smart to implement some of these things so that you can utilize the calories you're increasing. Because if your goal is to increase calories while maintaining the new leaner physique that you've achieved, as long as it's not so lean that it's unhealthy, you should try to think about how can I increase all these things, right? So eat, exercise, activity, thermogenesis. Well, number one, you can increase volume. So now you're going to do more sets, more reps, uh, those kind of things. Two, you can increase metabolic training. So you could add in conditioning. You can add in finishers. Like the one I have today that I'm dreading is the 10 rounds of battle ropes that we're going to do. Were as in me, and you're going to film it and just <laughs> <laughs> observe. Um, and uh, and you can also add weight. Obviously, it increases intensity. Like just think of things that actually burn calories in the gym. You're just doing more, more work capacity. Um, then you can also increase the amount of food, but not just food, but also whole food. So a lot of times when people reverse diet, they're like, finally, and I totally get this. Finally, I can not quote unquote diet. So I'm going to fit some. Snickers in there. I'm going to fit some potato chips in there. I'm going to fit some of these treats that I've been missing into the diet, which I think you should do. But if you're trying to maintain a lean physique, you want to optimize all these categories. Number one, those things typically lead to more cravings and binges. Um, And I don't believe it's tied to like insulin or blood sugar or any of these kind of things that a lot of the gurus say. I think it's more psychological. When you eat those kind of things, they taste really good and you want more of them plain and simple. And they're not that satiating from a nutrient perspective. Um, There's no micronutrients in them. No, no fiber or anything. If you increase the amount of potatoes and rice and fruits and vegetables and whole meats uh, or lean meats and whole foods and dairy and things like that, you're increasing food that also increases TEF, thermic effect food. Processed food is already broken down to an extent. So if you have more protein shakes and more packaged goods, your TEF isn't going to increase. So we want to optimize those things. Um, And your, yeah, so those three things, I mean, really are the biggest things, right? So knowing that, he obviously did well with all these categories for the most part. I would just be consistently focused on that while decreasing your need. So yes, you can decrease your steps while maintaining that weight, but you need to probably make up for some of it in those other areas and also go very slowly. So what I would do is instead of going, all right, realistically, I just want to walk 10,000 steps a day. I wouldn't go from 16 to 10,000 right away, right? What you could do is not look at your tracker at all, not intentionally increase your steps and just see what happens for one day. It's not going to cause any issues, but that way you can at least get a baseline of what's actually normal. Because if you're trying, like if you're going out of your way to go on random walks throughout the day to try to hit 16,000 steps, then 
you're not really doing something that's lifestyle oriented. You're going out of your way constantly to try to walk more, which at times, if you're in a fallacy, whatever, makes sense. Right now, I'm doing 30-minute walk every single day. It's on purpose, right? Partly for the challenge because half the days I don't want to do it, partly because I want to lose some fat. But if I were to try to figure out what I want to work towards, I would wear the tracker. Let's say it's an ordering, wear it and not look at my ordering app at all. I'd turn it on in the morning, make sure it's tracking, and then I just wouldn't look at it. At the end of the night, I would look at it to see what is what was my steps today on a normal day where I'm casually, not intentionally going out of my way to do anything. And if it's at 11,000 steps, let's say, then my goal is to go from 16 to 11,000. And I would do that by reducing 500 steps per day per week. So this week, my goal is 15,500 steps. Next week, it's 15,000 steps. The week after that, it's 14. That hypothetically? Hypothetical. Okay, okay. But... Um, there's no science behind how slow you should drop that. So I'm glad you asked that because there's nothing special about 500, but a thousand's a big jump. Like you actually have to walk for a decent amount of time to hit a thousand steps. So I, I would suggest about 500 just based on my experience. And if you do that every week until you reach that 11,000, I would be pretty confident that your metabolism would be able to keep up and adapt quickly enough, especially if you had a successful reverse diet. It means that the, adaptive nature of your metabolism is probably going to be favorable during this process because everybody has a different speed of adaptation with their metabolism, right? Certain people go through reverse diet and they gain weight quick. They, they don't have a very um, adaptive metabolism. Other people go through reverse diet and barely gain any weight, if any at all, and they have a very adaptive metabolism. Now, if you have an adaptive metabolism, obviously on the way down when you're trying to lose weight, it might bite you in the ass because if your metabolism is adapting too quick and you're cutting calories to lose weight and it catches up too quick, now you have to keep dropping and dropping and dropping quickly. Whereas somebody who has a very non-responsive, meta- or I shouldn't say responsive, non-adaptive metabolism, I might make a 15% cut and then we're good for fucking eight weeks because they just keep slowly losing. Yeah. Um, their reverse diet might be hard. So um, point being, I would probably do the 500 steps per day and then adjust it every week until you reached your your predetermined like lifestyle step count. And then I would increase volume of training for two reasons. One, just to double down and make sure that you don't gain weight while doing this. But number two, if you're decreasing your activity through NEAT and you want to keep your calories high, you got to use those calories to an extent. I mean, some of them that you're just going to adapt, but you might have to lower calories while doing that. So instead of lowering calories, why not just, you know, instead of doing 10 sets per muscle group per week, why not do 15 and spread it out throughout the week? Or Maybe like what what I did with this program right now is uh, every day has a finisher, right? So yeah. we're I'm doing different styles. One day is more aerobic. Which program? The Everyday Athlete. So yep. it's not out yet, but um, one day is very aerobic. It's like sled poles, 10 minutes, just nonstop, back and forth walking with it um, to keep my heart rate at a steady pace and just pacing myself. Um, one day is battle ropes, so it's a little more intense. 10 to – last week was 10 seconds – uh, this week is 15 seconds. Next week is 20 seconds. And it's uh, 50 second rest, 45 second rest, 40 second rest. So I'm dropping the rest as I go. Um, Thursday is alactic. So anaerobic, alactic training. So it's, uh, I was pissed. Last week was supposed to be 30 second intervals and I did 40 second intervals. Why? I read it wrong. I read this week's. Oh. <laughs> but like 30 seconds versus 40 seconds all out on an assault bike. Absolutely. It's a huge difference. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was miserable after those. Um, first set, I was like pretty good. That's why I was like, second set, I was like, dude, film this one. Get it yeah, over with. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but man, that fourth one, my legs were so fucking pumped up after that. Like it was hard to walk to my office. I sat in my office for a little bit before <laughs> I left. Um, and then Friday is uh, like an AMRAP or EDT. So 10 minutes on the clock, 
curls, push downs, and then deficit push ups as many rounds as I can. So it's just like fast paced pump work. Um, but those are good examples of like an EDT 10 minutes, like 10 minutes isn't that long. And if I'm doing dumbbell curls for 10, tricep push downs for 10, and deficit push ups, so hands on plates uh, for as many as I can, leaving just one in the tank, that's the circuit. You look at your like 10 minutes, like four sets. I did four sets and I looked at the clock and three minutes had gone by. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. And so you just keep going. And obviously you slow down as you go, but you can do a lot of volume if you push yourself like that. Your heart rate's through the roof. You're burning a lot more calories than you would if you just did a few sets or even if you did as many sets because you take way longer. You're improving, uh, you're increasing your work capacity. Um, and that's uh, keeping so much blood flow in, in lactate in the muscle. You're actually burning a lot of carbohydrates. So if you reversed with higher carbs, you're being so glycolytic in that and the 30 second uh, assault bike. But those are all examples of finishers that take me 10 minutes or less. And actually they're all about 10 minutes. Exactly. Um, if you include the rest periods. Now, those are great ways to throw 10 extra minutes onto a few sessions a week and burn more calories. Yeah. You know what I mean? So doing stuff like that during the reverse while you're reducing those steps, probably a good idea. Um, very long winded answer with a lot of detail. When I said at the beginning, this is a really simple answer and I didn't think I was going to give that much detail, but, um, it's good value, man. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I would do. And this is where a lot of people like this. I was having a conversation with Cody Smith this morning and I was kind of like, we were talking about co the content we love to create. And it's actually funny. And this is why I think I love podcasts so much more. Cause when I write content, I like writing training content and like lifestyle content about, being a dad or a husband or a business owner so much more than writing nutrition content because in the way I explained to him, I was like, it really is for the most part, create a deficit, have some fucking discipline and just get it done. It's not going to be the easiest thing, but it's simple. It really is. If you have hormonal issues, yeah, we got to reverse, you know, don't worry about the scale so much, like more psychology than anything, which I like writing about. But when you, when you consider all the little tiny things that you can tweak with training and nutrition and coaching and all those things combined, there really is so much depth that you can elaborate on. And I think it's, those things don't come to mind when you're writing, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Where on a podcast, I'm like, I it's start saying something and then I'm like, oh, well then this and then this and then this. Yeah. It's almost like you're talking to a client. Exactly. About it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is way easier than sitting down and go, all right, what do I want to write a caption about? Yeah. You know, which I'm good at, but like, um, programming, like training is way easier to do that because there's so much nuance to program design that I can put in writing, you know what I yeah. mean? That it's like, yeah. Especially because I've been diving into a lot of stuff just because planning on changes for the Taylor Trainer yep. and upgrades and everything. So I've like been really diving into a lot of shit to totally. make it better. But, um, but yeah, I can't remember the listener's name. but That's dope. Parker. Parker. That's what I do, bro. Cool, man. All right, we will get to the next one here. It comes from Lars. It says, there are, is kind of long way. It says there are very different opinions on this, and I'm curious on what you think. When it comes to running and weightlifting, how much is too much running if the primary goal is to build muscle, but still uh, at the same time still want to maintain a decent uh, cardiovascular capacity? It is not easy as quote unquote just eat more if you are running 70 to 100 kilometers a week. I don't know what that goes out to be but it yeah. could it comes down to recovery the ability to adapt to the weightlifting hormones and the mixed signals the body receives i have a really simple answer and i have a uh, more complicated <laughs> answer uh, Big simple answer guy today. first let me ask you something travis oh god have you ever met anybody named lars named lars yes second follow okay i was gonna say follow-up question man have I was going to say, have you ever met anybody named Lars that's not famous? But obviously you haven't met the famous Larses. But the only Larses I can think of are famous. Who? They're, they're all in bands. 
Oh. Metallica drummer's name is Lars. The singer of Rancid is Lars. Like, there's a lot of famous Lars. There's a pro skateboarder named Lars. But I've never met somebody in person named Lars. I don't know. Maybe I know that I have know a few Lars. <laughs> Not Laura, but Lara. Not yeah. Lars, though. Lars, like, it's like a man, right? Lars. L-A-R-S. picture. But that's what the name is. L-A-R-S. Yes. That's the guy's name. Lars just seems like a really gnarly person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, Rancid, if anybody listened, doesn't know, legendary, like, punk rock band, so, like, as gnarly as you get. The drummer of Metallica is fucking Metallica. For, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, but, actually, isn't that, there's, isn't there that one pro surfer named Lars that's super famous? Or is that his, maybe that's his last Kelly name. Kelly Slater? No, he's <laughs> older than that guy. Um, maybe, maybe that's his last name. I have pro surfer Lars. I feel like there is. No? Maybe sure. I'm, nope. Maybe I'm tripping. Lars Hamilton? There we go. Oh, it's Laird Hamilton. But they Laird. might maybe they call him Lars. Ingo. He is like that's the guy I talked about on yes. one of the podcasts that I said is the most yes. famous surfer. Because that's he him. he does the salt bike in the sauna. In the sauna? Yeah. Who the fuck does that? Yeah, it's Talk great. about gnarly. Yeah. An assault like you know I'm gonna have to do that once we get in a sauna now. Just because like I have to Try it. It's not something you have to try. I mean, no, nobody else is probably doing it. Joe Rogan, I think, did it, or maybe Joe Rogan said, "Fuck that" and didn't do it. Yeah. But I know that no, he yeah, said, he that's said, how I heard he about said, it. Yeah, he sent Joe Rogan like a video of yeah. doing it or something. And he was on there, I think, too. Yeah, he was on there. Yeah, Rob Deerdick went and visited him. They oh. did like a surf thing, him and drama and shit. But yeah, crazy. All right. Um, okay, so simple answer is that two thirds of your volume should be dedicated to your priority goal. One third can be de- dedicated to whatever else you want. That is the most cut and dry, simple answer. Um, if your main goal is to get better at endurance, then two thirds of your training should go to endurance. If one third of, uh, or I'm sorry, two thirds of your goal is strength and hypertrophy, and that's what your main goal is, and two thirds of your volume goes there, one third can go to endurance. Here's the catch 22. Ultimately, it depends less on what you enjoy most and what you want to improve upon right now. And the reason I say that is because there's, there's a few routes. If we look at a long-term picture of this, if we're like talking about periodization of this, if I stepped into this and I went like, okay, I want to, I want to do like strength and bodybuilding, but I also want to do some kind of like aerobic endurance kind of stuff. The only way I'm going to get much better at endurance-based training is if I spend at least half, if not what I would recommend, two-thirds of my volume. So which would mean I would have to probably lift three days a week instead of four or five like I normally do, and I would have to do aerobic and endurance work the rest of the week. I would have to do more because the only way my body's going to adapt in a favorable way to get better at any type of sport or endeavor is if I dominate my training week with that sport or endeavor, yeah. right? That activity. Now, the one third is still enough to maintain because if you actually look at the research that shows that one eighth of your current volume can actually maintain the gains you've got. So if it takes me 20 sets per muscle group per week to build muscle and strength, it would only take me one eighth of that, which I have no idea. It is off the top of my head. Very minimal. It's like a couple sets, two, three sets a week per muscle group. Um, granted, what I would also say is that this was also in, uh, lifters that I wouldn't classify as like advanced. So I would probably double that at least. But even if, even if we shit, uh, one third, or even if we quadruple that, we times it by four, that's still only half. That's four eighths. And we can, I could venture say that that's probably accurate, right? And most advanced lifters will tell you about half your volume will maintain it. So what that means is like, if I look at my schedule right now, if I'm lifting four or five days a week, I could easily hit half that volume Three. in half the days. Yep. You know what I mean? And then I can spend the rest of those days and the extra two days a week that I don't train doing endurance-based training. So the answer I would have for you, Lars, is, is what's your weak spot? 
you know, if it's the aerobic and endurance side and that's the side you need the most improvement on, I'd probably spend a, like a good amount of time training that more than the strength training. Cause the strength training, just doing 50% of the volume you're doing now, it's going to maintain your strength in muscle mass. Um, while you get way more time to actually allow your body to adapt to the aerobic style stuff. And then once you get better at that, maybe you set up some tests, you could do like a 2k row a Cooper's test mile time. I mean, there's so many different things you can do, um, to test your aerobic fitness level. Once you get to that level you want to be at, then you can reassess and go, okay, do I want to do 50-50 and just maintain both of them at this level? Or do I want to prioritize more strength training because that's what I actually enjoy more? I just want to be a multi-sport trainee or athlete. And if that's the case, then you would go back to doing two-thirds of your volume with strength training and then one-third of aerobic endurance, which would be just there to maintain the adaptation that you created from the previous block. Absolutely. But that would take time, you know? So... Um, <clears throat> It's exactly why, like, there's a lot of bodybuilders who, competitive bodybuilders who do powerlifting in their off season. And most people would look at that and be like, well, why would you do that if it's not specific to your sport? Well, during powerlifting, it's, it's the off season, but the off season is where you're supposed to put on muscle, right? So the people that usually do this are um, bodybuilders who are not going to make significant gains anymore. They've been training for well over a decade. They're maybe in the 30, 40, or 50-year-old class, and they know they're not going to build muscle. So the, the way they keep winning shows is they get leaner and leaner. They come in more conditioned every show. People who are into bodybuilding know this. But powerlifting is a great way to do it because doing powerlifting, you're going to express a lot of strength. You're going to increase intensity. You're going to have a lot of neural adaptations, and you're definitely going to do half the volume probably about half the volume you would do, but it's at such a high intensity, you're going to maintain all the muscle without a doubt. So now you can have a, a side sport that you excel at in the off season. And then during your in season of bodybuilding, you just stop powerlifting, do a little extra pump work, get lean off season comes up, you increase calories, do powerlifting, and you can always maintain that goal. Um, now granted, like for people listening, most of you guys would know that powerlifting bodybuilding is much closer as far as a form of adaptation than running in bodybuilding you know what I mean so you're going to maintain easier by doing powerlifting than you would by running because they're just poor opposite it's like it's like saying it's like really I'm going to maintain my tennis skills by playing soccer it's like no you'd probably be better off playing golf or baseball because at least you're swinging something with your upper body you know still yeah. different but, absolutely you know closer yeah. um or tetherball or something um there's tetherballs in the like cul-de-sacs around yeah. me and I every time I walk by I'm like Phew. I'm just waiting for a kid to be out there playing so I can be like yo one wrap around. Yeah, let's play. <laughs> Little tiny kid jumping for the ball. <laughs> I remember uh, Big Luis, this uh, dude I used to uh, hang out with at school and shit, and he, he he used to have just like, he was bigger than all of us in fourth, fifth grade, so he just had the most gnarly serve <laughs> and would just crush kids. Yeah. At, and it just, dude, drove me fucking crazy. Um, it's funny, Albert brought him up the other day when I was getting my hair Big cut. Big Luis. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we don't call him Big Luis anymore. It's just Luis, but uh, back in the day we did because... Uh. He was way bigger. Yeah. It was back in the day when we had, uh, I remember, I don't know why I remember playing tetherball in these shoes, but you remember the and ones that were split in half a color, like half blue, half like silver or white. Kind they had the yeah. crimson and yeah. silver ones and then the white and blue ones. Yeah. It was like the dopest and one shoes. <laughs> the only dope and one shoes. It's so weird that you remember that. It is very weird. But, um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of my spiel. I think that for the most part, that's, that's as about as like, complex as you got to get I would also say that like because he mentioned hormones recovery and all that stuff I don't think you have to worry too much about the hormonal side of things but the recovery side is kind of like where you see how much is too much right so um 
when you're figuring out how much of each you can do, because there are people who do two-a-days for this, right? There's a lot of people that do that, um, specifically like CrossFitters, stuff like that. The truth is, is the only way that you can improve both of those endeavors at the same time is with an unbelievable amount of volume. You probably can't have a job, to be honest with you, unless you're a coach. Yeah. Because then you could at least be an online coach. You're probably not going to – and I know people who have done this to where they are this kind of athlete, but they never have a huge company because they can't commit the time to it because they're committed to their athletic natures, which is fine. It's everybody's personal choice. But you'd have to do like endurance-based stuff in the morning and then lifting uh, six to seven hours later so that they don't conflict with each other. You'd probably want to take a nap in between, do some mobility, eat tons of calories. That's how professional CrossFitters do it. They do two separate sessions every single day. They're doing extra recovery modalities and they eat a fuck ton of food. Um, reading uh, Matt Frazier's book and like reading how many calories he had to eat every day, dude, it was stupid. He would wake up and his wife already had like his first breakfast on his nightstand. He would eat it before getting out of bed, like just eat it. Then he, by the time he would get dressed and everything, his like omelet and everything would be ready. He would have to eat that and that's his second breakfast. Like, Dude, it was stupid. He had to eat a Snickers bar basically every day just to try to meet calories. Like, it's crazy. But when you're training two to three times a day, every day. sponsored by Snickers. Yeah. No <laughs> shit. Um, but, but that's like, watch your recovery. And if you just see the signals of like when you're tapping into that overtraining, that's when you know you got to pull back on one of the two. And again, always trying to keep it in that two-thirds to one-third balance. Even in that the sport of CrossFit, you can see that like there are certain athletes who were just freakish lifters or Olympic lifters, power lifters, stuff like that they would do more aerobic stuff because that's what they needed to improve. Because if they just maintained their ability to do, Matt Frazier is a good example of this because he was an Olympic lifter when he was a kid. So he went to the Olympic training center. So when he got into CrossFit, like the snatch, clean and press, all those kind of things, he was just the best. So what did he do? He did a ton of conditioning and aerobic work because that was his weak point. So if he brought that up and just maintained his level of proficiency with Olympic lifts, he would crush it. So, that's kind of how you have to look at this, and you're just constantly assessing your recoverability. Figuring out your weak point. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Cool. All right, cool. We'll get do one more here, guys. We got one from Ashley Hollett. Uh, it says, what are your thoughts? Oh, I like this one. What are your thoughts on training based on somebody's personality type? This is like classic neurotyping. Um, we've had, so, so Charles Poliquin kind of, was like the first one to kind of establish this. And if you don't know who Charles Poliquin is, unfortunately he passed away very recently within the last few months. Legend in the strength and conditioning world. Um, if you ever, like if you have time to just fuck around on the internet and you like this stuff, just Google search Charles Poliquin. Read his books, his articles, listen to his podcast interviews. The guy just had like the most outlandish shit that he would come up with. Some of which was later kind of debunked by science. There is a few things that were kind of guruism, but there was a lot of shit that he was doing that couldn't be proved by science at the time and then later on got proved by science. And he worked with a ton of amazing athletes, so really, really informative guy. But he mentored Christian Thibodeau, and Christian Thibodeau's parents were psychologists, or I think it was psychologists, or psychi- psych- uh, psychi- uh, what is the word? Psychiatrists? Yep. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Psychiatric. They did that kind of stuff. So yeah. I, I think psychiatrist is the word. You do like therapy and you're like a doctor and so yeah. on and so forth. Um, and so they used a certain system of personality typing for people. And then Christian Thibodeau being around that and his own personal background that he shared on our podcast because we've met him on here. I've, I've hung out with him a few times. I've learned a lot from him over the years. Um, he created neurotyping. And neurotyping is there's 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B, and then 4. And they're these different personality types essentially. 
one a one b is very similar but they're slightly different and you always have a primary and a secondary um so we've had them on the podcast we've also written a blog on it so we can link that in the description of this podcast and it's just it's the neurotyping blog it's actually a really one of our really popular blogs um and it's and it talks exactly about this and a lot of it comes down to the neurotransmitters in our brains that's why it's called neurotyping so everybody has different levels of dopamine serotonin uh uh, choline, uh, acetylcholine, things like that. And our responses to influx of those are different. And our responses to training with those things are different. Um, same thing with the diet, but training more, more specifically. Now I'm not huge on it because it, like if you do true neurotyping, um, and it's not that I, I think it's very interesting. It's, it's a fun topic to dive into. The problem I see with it is it requires a lot of testing and interviewing so if i already have a general questionnaire and general assessment for neutral stuff and then i'm like hey also i did the neurotyping test it's like 100 questions hey client answer 100 questions for me too you know of random shit of like um kind of like the enneagram stuff you know what i mean so i believe in it i like it i think it's not always the most applicable thing to adhere to for clients i also think this i think that if you're, I think it's a great system to learn as a coach because as I went through, uh, Thibs, he, Kristen Thibs actually has a course. So going through his course, talking to him, doing the test, all that kind of stuff. Um, one of our coaches did the course we've written on it. Like I've learned a ton about it. I've been able to take so much away from it that I know what to look for. So I think as a coach, the most important thing to do is you can study that stuff because it does help, but more than me wanting to give my clients the information, I just like learning about it and then also studying psychology and emotional intelligence. Not in the case of fitness necessarily, but as a coach, if you really understand emotional intelligence and the psychology behind fat loss, nutrition, adherence, behavior change, all those kind of things, which you should know as a coach, I think all this stuff's going to click way easier and you're going to be way better at it and you're going to have more application with it. So I love it because I think there's, you know, there's certain clients that I specifically have six week blocks with and there's certain clients that I only do like two to three week blocks with. Why? It's because certain personality types different. My personality type needs, and it's, and actually in the test, it actually showed this too and it was very aligned with how I am. I need more variety. So for me, my blocks have to change every three weeks or else I get super fucking bored of the training program even though there is some reason that you'd want to go longer than three weeks for strength adaptations. Muscle, maybe not as important, both of which you need that repeated bout effect to progress, uh, progressively overload, right? Yeah. So I could be shooting myself in the foot, but that's why like last week I did dumbbell reverse lunges. This week it was more of a corrective. We had the RNT, so the band pulling my knee, so I have to work on stability too. Next week, I want to say it's a deficit, so I'm standing off a plate. I'm doing reverse lunge every week, but for three weeks, I'm changing that reverse lunge. Yeah. Then the next week it's Bulgarian split squats. And then it goes from a R&T Bul- Bulgarian split squat because that slight variation for me stimulates my brain to be more motivated to train hard. And then my effort's higher. If my effort's higher, I'm closer to failure on every set, which is going to lead to better results. So these are the kind of things that you can do, but you can also just ask people questions like what kind of programming have you done? What have you liked? What did you hate? Do you get bored in the gym? Like what do you do in your rest periods? Like there's people who, can chill and rest for five minutes. There's people who are antsy to get to the next set. You know, those kind of things can cue you on like, okay, I, I need to pay attention to these things so I can program properly for that individual. Yeah. And just get to, get to know your client better. hundred percent. Yeah. Ask the right questions. It's yeah. as simple as that. And, and again, that comes down to psychology and emotional intelligence, yep. which neurotyping is, it, it's kind of diving into the, the science of neurotransmitters with a heavy influence of psychology. Like that's really what it is. Um, 
Because if you go through the test and you look at the questions, it is very much so like, in this situation, yeah. what would you do? Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, yep. And it's just how does your brain work? Um, you know, would this cause anxiety or would you not give a shit? You know, it's things like that. And then also, too, you can you can pay attention to uh, personality types can actually cue you into like muscle fiber dominance. So, um, for example, and it's actually really weird because a lot of times very type one, fast twitch dominant explosive so the the two types of there's fast switch and slow twitch fibers there's like two two a to b like there's like fiber x now like these combinations but the main ones are fast switch and slow twitch fast switch would be like explosive athlete theo Bowie, Mm -hmm. for like people that you've seen train right yeah uh slow twitch is more like bodybuilding style me i'm much more like when it comes to sprints i can get up and go but like that's not my like i like sprinting but like if me and Theo are sprinting, he's crushing me. If we're yeah. jumping, he's crushing me. If we're doing a one rep max, he's crushing me. If we're doing an eight rep max, I'm crushing him. Mm-hmm. If we're doing a, a 40 second interval on the assault bike, I'll probably crush him. You know what I mean? It's, it's slow twitch versus fast switch, endurance versus explosiveness. And they actually have signals of, of personality type to lead to that. And the thing that was interesting to me is a lot of the personality types of the explosive fast twitch dominant athlete is very like chill and careless and like, easy going, doesn't really need to warm up a ton. It's kind of just laid back, which is weird because if you think explosive, you think they would be the opposite. And I was thinking of Theo as I read that because I was like, Theo's like one of the most chill person people I know, but he's extremely explosive. Yeah. Like he just fucking pops when he jumps or lifts or anything. Um, but that's another thing is like you can pay attention to certain things like that. You can also pay attention to like if you ask them questions about what programs they experienced great results with once once they didn't. Um, what do you enjoy most, uh, one to three rep max or cranking out a set of eight to 10? You know what I mean? And, and that's going to tell you right there. Like they're going to like whatever they're best at, mm-hmm. plain and simple, right? Um, and so lean towards that. That's why I used to do a ton. I know enough now to where I'm doing more low rep sets because I know that's my weak point that I want to build. But where I used to always go to is like I'd rather crank out eight to 10. For sure. I'm great at that, you know? So um, I think it's good though. I think it's good information for coaches. I don't think it's necessarily um, – necessary for clientele i think the coach should kind of cue into those signals and then be able to adapt the program for the person totally love that man all right cool that was the last one for today guys so if you have any do you have any announcements not today no uh as always leave us a five-star rating and review on spotify and itunes uh we would appreciate it Uh, take a screenshot of the show share it on your story tag myself at cody mcbroom uh tag tailored coaching method as well we want to share it on our story and thank you for listening um and last but not least check out our sponsor first form you can head over to firstform.com slash tailored coaching method and get free priority shipping on any of their supplements um they have literally everything you could possibly think of and they have the best customer service in the industry guaranteed thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time